God is great, amen, and technology is not, <laughs> amen, but <clears throat> what did we do before we had technology? <clears throat> well, I guess we just sang out of a book, didn't we? <clears throat> Somebody's going to send me an email this week, say, Pastor, I told you that stuff's of the devil, you need to go back to them hymn books. <clears throat> so who's clapping? <clears throat> <clears throat> Oh, man. We have amazing uh, ministry here every Sunday afternoon by, uh, called Celebrate Recovery. Uh, it's not super visible. It's faithful, dedicated, loyal men and women doing the, the uh, heart and soul ministry of Eastlake. Loving, serving, restoring, renewing individuals. And uh, uh, some of you are already thinking of a relative that you think ought to go to Celebrate Recovery right now. And uh, if I could, I would just pull out a big mirror. Anybody here have hurts, habits, and hang-ups? Raise your hand. The rest of you are liars, and that's your habit, so you need to stop. So, uh, uh, oh, I don't know. I guess mine's are going to work, right? Oh, great. Uh, mine works. I was thinking I was going to do that without it. It's not that big a deal. Uh, Sundays at 4.30, a dedicated team of folks with about 20 folks gather here to worship, to encourage, to strengthen, to go through some curriculum. They have a meal together every Sunday. Lots of ways to get involved, including being a participant, learning and growing yourself in this. And uh, first of the year is a great time to, to get involved in something like this. It's also a way to get There's a great way to get involved by volunteering and serving and helping. A lot of ways to do that. So uh, I had breakfast on Friday morning with Brandon Tuck, who leads our Celebrate Recovery Ministry. And uh, probably a few things are as important uh, certainly, few things are as important as Celebrate Recovery. So pray for Celebrate Recovery, participate, involve, and uh, if God leads you, get involved in it uh, uh, when, when, uh, when He leads you to do that. So it's, uh, we're in 21 days of prayer and fasting, and uh, today is day, starts day, or it's day 15 actually, one more week of seeking the Lord, and then we're not going to seek the Lord anymore the rest of the year, we'll have that out of the way. How many of you know that prayer and fasting in January is not something we do just in January? It establishes a pattern of obeying, seeking, serving the Lord throughout the year. Amen? And uh, that is why we do it. We do. It's prayer is not the, the uh, only thing we do. It's just the first thing we do. Right? Uh, so it's a wonderful time of seeking the Lord. I trust the resources that we provided have been a blessing to you. I was blessed yesterday to go to Northern Virginia and spend about eight or nine hours with a church leadership team of about 50 folks from Percival Baptist Church, and we had a prayer conference from nine o'clock to four o'clock, and it was awesome, and what an amazing time we had together just seeking the Lord, waiting on the Lord, reading, singing, uh, uh, interacting with one another, and uh, I was just blessed to do that. We drove back last night in a beautiful, it was such a beautiful drive home from Northern Virginia. 37 degrees, hard rain, puddles everywhere, tractor trailers. And I feel amazing though this morning. God is good, amen? And uh, so turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, a familiar passage on this matter of prayer. The question I posed this morning is, does prayer really change things. We've all seen that bumper sticker, prayer changes things, and uh, we all say amen as we go by. But we have this interesting relationship with prayer, don't we? 
Because all of us have prayed at some time or another. Prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. Nothing happened. Am I the only one like that? Is that, is that more than me? Right? We've prayed, 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 and nothing has happened. And then there are those times when you say just the simplest prayer. And bam! It happens. Are you with me? And so we know prayer changes things. But if the truth were known, for some people there's a bit of confusion between powerfully answered prayer and coincidence. We want to believe and we we know that God is real and we want to know, we want to believe that God changes things. But is there really power in prayer? Is prayer more than a therapeutic exercise that we perform to cause our lives to be a little more at ease? Does prayer actually work? Good answers, by the way. Those are just great. Perfect. And I I agree with you. But I want to open our Bibles this morning to James chapter 5, a very familiar passage where James uh, puts this paragraph towards the end of his letter and... uh, he, he makes some pretty bold statements about prayer. And uh, I believe the Word of God 100%. I believe the Word of God is true. It's anointed. It was written by holy men of old who were moved by the Holy Spirit. And they wrote the truth of God to us. This is the living, breathing words. If you wonder where I stand on the Bible, I believe it is the Word of God to us. And it supersedes every other manual we've published since the date. Amen? And so... But, but with that said, I'm also uh, human enough that when I read stuff, I want to I wanna probe it a little bit. Because I want, the word of, I want, my, I want my, my faith and my reality to match up to the truth of God's word. Amen? And so, so we're going to read this passage that you're familiar with, James chapter 5, verse 13. This is what he says. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. I think if I counted, it's like seven or eight times he talks about prayer in these five or six verses. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. One writer, one one scholar said that the Jewish tradition was that if you were sick, you did not tell any, you you pretty much kept that in-house for a day. And then the second day, you said, go tell some people so I don't die. And then if the people who were your enemies, they rejoiced. And then they would go get some elders or t- from the leaders, and then they would bring them to you. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, con- confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth and then he prayed again and and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. That's a familiar passage of scripture. Everyone in this room and those watching online, welcome all those online, those in the chapel as well. I know there's a a lot of churches canceled in America today because of snow, so we welcome all of you in your PJs this morning. God bless you. But we like to take, we like to take this, this paragraph of Scripture and we like to pull the verses out because there's some really 
impressive, amazing promises in here. So, what is James talking about? Because if you're like me, when you read this stuff, you start asking questions. Like, what is the suffering he's talking about in verse 13? And what is it that elders of the church have to offer in their prayers that other people don't have? And what is this whole anointing with oil? I mean, am I I the only one? No, I think I'm not. You know, you ask questions. The word of God is true, powerful, relevant, important. We need to understand it. Does the prayer of faith always restore the one who is sick and allow the Lord to raise them up? And why does he give an illustration of rain in the middle of a passage about prayer and healing? I want us to, I want us to just take a, take a look at this passage, and as we do, we're going to kind of land on it. We're going like to come down like a parachute on it, and we're going to see it, and we're going to get closer, and hopefully before we're done, we're going to be rolling around in it, all right? So to understand this, I think, for me at least, I had to get a, a better understanding of the context of, the teach, of these teachings on prayer. It's important whenever you understand the Word of God or you, you want to study the Word of God that you understand what's all around it. And you, you, you put it in context. So James, the half-brother of Jesus, who didn't come to faith in his half-brother until very late, James, the half-brother of Jesus, is writing to Jewish Christians who were really well-versed in the traditions of the Jews. This is who he's writing to. The half-brother of Jesus, about 60, 65 A.D., is writing to these Christians, believers, followers of Jesus, who were first Jews and very entrenched in their Jewish thinking and understanding. As a matter of fact, James makes some strong references to Jewish customs and tradition. He's talking about elders. That was, of course, the church. It was sort of the primitive structure of the church in the New Testament. But it's also, it was sort of a, uh, also a Jewish tradition that the, the, the leaders, the elders from the synagogue would come and pray over someone. The idea of oil, anointing with oil, was very much a Jewish custom that they anointed with oil. If you read the story of the Good Samaritan, he covered him in oil, he anointed him in oil. So it was sort of a, these were Jewish believers who followed Christ, but they had this Jewish background, and he's, he's, he's referencing it in these, in these verses. He tells them the story of Elijah. He didn't have to go into detail. They knew the story of Elijah. They were Jews. His closing illustration in this paragraph is, you remember Elijah. Well, I want you to know he was just like you guys, and they all thought, no, he wasn't just like us. Elijah was up here. He didn't die. He rode to heaven in a chariot. He said, no, no, Elijah put his robe on the same way you put your robe on, essentially is what he's saying. And they didn't have to go to the details of Elijah's story. He didn't have to tell them. It's in 1 Kings 17 and 18. He didn't have to tell them that because they knew it. They were Jews. This is who he's writing this to. But it's, it's important to know that this letter was written to Jewish Christians. But it's also important to know that he was writing to Jewish Christians who were suffering greatly in their faith. He starts out the whole book by saying, listen, I want you to know something. I want you to count it all joy when you go through various temptations and trials. He begins immediately, like the third verse, he's telling them, be patient in the midst of this. God's got a crown of glory that will never fade away. They were being persecuted. These Christians, Jewish Christians, were being persecuted for their faith. In chapter 5, he begins by talking to their persecutors and saying, 
said, you prosperous, wealthy persecutors, I want you to know God's keeping a record. In the second paragraph of chapter 5, he says to the Christians once again, be patient. Be like a farmer who waits for the harvest. And so he's writing to men and women when he says, is anyone among you suffering? His suffering has been well described in the whole book. It wasn't like he wrote to the church and said, anybody there feeling under the weather? Okay, he was writing to men and women who were being persecuted for their faith. My sister sent, uh, we have a little family group text, and one of my sisters had a child who had cancer many, many years ago, and she had written to Elizabeth Elliot, if you know who Jim Elliot was, and then Elizabeth was his wife, a a well-known published author. And she she sent this text last night to our siblings, and it worked perfectly because for this sermon, I'll tell you why. But anyways, Elizabeth Elliot, she, my sister wrote to her about a book. And Elizabeth Elliot wrote her a personal, hand, a personal note back. And the personal note was comforting my sister in this time. And she said, here's a definition of suffering. Suffering is having what I don't want. Or wanting what I don't have. And she said, we're all called to suffer for Christ. Having what I don't want. Or wanting what? I thought that was a great definition of suffering. But James says, is anyone among you suffering? Yeah, they had what they didn't want. They were being beaten, abused, persecuted. They wanted what they did not have. So he's writing to Jewish Christians under great suffering. And then this paragraph on prayer appears at the close of the letter on faith and practice, suffering and patience. He did not write it as a manual for a faith healer. Now, I'm only, I'm only trying to help us come down on this and land on this and understand it. So let's look a little closer. He mentions in this paragraph three types of praying. Three types of praying. When you read this paragraph, mostly I've always seen one type of praying. This is the place in Scripture where it says, if there are sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church and anoint with oil. I believe in that. I, I do it as a, a, because it's the Word of God, and it's, it's in the Word of God. I carry a little bottle of oil in my car. We have them here. So our staff has them, and we, we frequently anoint people with oil. But there's nothing magical about that oil. And I better not say this too loud, or somebody will start a new line of essential oils called healing oil. But anyways, maybe they already did. I'm sorry I offended about 98% of the congregation this morning. Somebody's sniffing it as we preach. (laughs) Praise God. Whatever helps. Whatever helps. God bless you. Amen. Oils are all in the Bible. Okay, now I've just killed the whole thing. Somebody's not going to listen to anything else I said. That's mostly the type of uh, praying I see in there. But listen, here's very simply three types of praying. Number one, he says, pray for yourself. Are there any among you suffering? Let him pray. Aren't you glad that you can pray for yourself? Aren't you glad that you can call on God anywhere, anytime, anyway? You can just lift your heart up to God and say, Oh God, I need your help. Aren't you glad you don't have to come to church, make an appointment, get with some priest in a room, close the door behind? Aren't you glad that you can cry out to God? James says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let them lift their voice in prayer. Secondly, there's the prayer of elders from the church to come pray over you. This included this ritual of anointing with oil as I said, which would have been a Jewish custom. In a sense, it is doing what is humanly possible for healing and having faith in God. He doesn't say anoint with oil and the supernatural oil from the, 
from the garden of Gethsemane will heal the sick. He doesn't say that there's any unction in the oil. He says the prayer of faith will save the sick. The oil was a sort of a relating to their Jewish understanding. And I, I do it. I believe it. It's in the Bible. I think it's a good symbol and practice. But there's nothing supernatural in the oil. There is something supernatural in faith. Amen. So there's the prayer of elders. Praying for yourself. Thirdly, he tells us in these verses to pray for one another as believers. In verse 16, we receive the, we receive the rather awkward instruction to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we may receive healing both spiritually and physically. Supernatural help from the Lord in the midst of our battle. So he says, I want you to pray for yourself and I want you to call for the leaders to pray if you need to. And I want you to pray with one another confessing your faults so that your sins will be forgiven and you can be healed. There's supernatural power, he's saying in all this. Interesting Description of his prayers. But as we, as we think about this passage, it's, it's really the verse, the last part of verse 16 that really strikes us. And that is this amazing promise that is attached to Christian prayer. When you get to verse 16, you read the last half of the verse, which is an encouraging and amazing promise connected to Christian praying. Translations differ on how we get it from the original language to English, but in any translation you read, there are at least three characteristics of Christian praying according to the half-brother of Jesus. The Greek, the Greek, I back up just one, one step there if you would please. The Greek, it translates very simply, the prayer, much prevailing, of the righteous is made effective. And there's really three characteristics that come out of that. I, I read it in probably 25 or 30 translations and tried to, I'm not a scholar, but I tried to understand the original language as best I can. And here are the characteristics of Christian praying. Are you ready? You say, I'm a Christian, I pray. Well, let's see. Let's see, because these are the essential characteristics of Christian praying. Number one, the characteristic of righteousness. Christian praying is rooted in our right relationship with the Lord. The righteous, James says, it is the effectual fervent, as we learned it in the King James, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person. James connects authentic praying to the relationship of the prayer to the one to whom they are praying. So here's a good word. If you want to be a powerful prayer, if you want to be a Christian prayer, you got to be a Christian. Amen? So let's, let's, let's probe that word a little bit. Righteousness. What is he talking about? Righteousness includes a relationship with God through faith in Christ. You have to truly be born again. And when you are born again, the righteousness of Christ is yours. And you can approach the throne of God boldly by the power of God. Amen. God hears the prayer of a sinner, the prayer of confession and the repentance. But David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord does not hear me. Proverbs chapter 4, I read it just last night, says that God restores and listens to the humble, but he he scorns the proud. He listens to the humble, but he scorns the proud. Righteousness includes a relationship with God through faith in Christ. Righteousness includes faith and trust in the promises of God. When I am righteous, I am right with God, but I am also trusting and believing in the promises that God has made. Righteousness includes submission to the will of God. 
We're told in many places in Scripture that we must pray according to the will of God. Jesus said in His model prayer, when you pray, pray this way, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Listen, if we're going to be righteous prayers, we got to be in right relationship with God. we got to believe the promises and the Word of God. And we've got to be submitted and surrendered to the will of God in our life. Somehow we've taken these verses on prayer in the Bible and we've taken them and we've plucked them out and we've, we've assumed that we, if we do a couple things, if we meet a couple conditions, then we can wield the power of God on the end of our prayer wand and we get to control what God does and whatever we want God to do. I want to tell you something. We as righteous prayers must be surrendered to the will of God. His illustration is Elijah, and this is what Elijah's prayers did for his health, wealth, and prosperity. He said, it shall not rain, and it stopped raining, and God said, and you're going to live on bird food for three years. And he lived by the brook, and the birds were bringing him food, and he was lonely, and at times discouraged, and times depressed. But what was he doing? He was praying and moving in the will of God. It had been some of us, Elijah would have prayed, Lord, kill King Ahab and make me king and make me, make me famous. But instead he said, Lord, thy will be done. If you're going to pray a righteous prayer, you've got to be in a right relationship with God. You've got to believe the promises of God. You've got to be submitted to the will of God. And you've got to be obedient to the word of God. And you see, the only way we'll know those things is to cultivate a relationship with God within our heart. So righteousness is a, is a characteristic of, of Christian praying. Secondly, passion is a characteristic of Christian praying. Christian praying is rooted in spirit-led pursuit of God's intervention. As I said, translators had a hard time. I was a little bit perplexed. I thought early on when I was going to take this passage and study it, I thought, well, that's effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous. I can't see what Greek word is effectual. Can't wait to see what Greek word is fervent. Can't wait to, I was going to, it just made a nice little homiletical outline for me. Here are the characteristics, delve those words out, figure out what it says. And there's five Greek words in this whole phrase. And some translations kind of add a little bit and, and trying to, and they're communicating many, most, all of them are pretty much communicating the right idea. But here's, here's essentially the right idea. The right idea is a righteous person who, as I like, I like this, this, this word, with energetic supplication. The righteous person with energetic supplication. It's, the, it's why the King James said, effectual fervent. It's why in the next verse he said, let me tell you this, let me give you the illustration of this. Elijah was a man who prayed fervently. I believe that, I believe that, the passionate prayer of the Christian is not just how much energy can I, can I, can I rise up within me. But it is, it is allowing the Holy Spirit of God to bring a deep-seated conviction in my soul that the will of God must take place in the life of my child that is lost or my situation that is hopeless. I must seek the will of God. And we become right with God, submitted to the will of God, but relentless in our pursuit of God's power to work in our life. This idea that I can live any way I want, do whatever I want, and just decide at the minute, oh, Lord, would you help me with this? Well, no wonder your prayers aren't working. You've got to be a righteous person, and you've got to be passionate. The fervent prayer 
the effective fervent prayer. Can I just say this, this morning that fervent does not relate to length but depth. Uh, there's a Jewish maxim that said the prayers of the righteous are short. I, don't, I didn't read the next chapter because I was afraid it would say the preaching of the righteous is short. And I didn't want to read that. His, his, his illustration, James's illustration in here is Elijah. He didn't really have any long prayers. As a matter of fact, the first prayer we, that he prayed, we, we don't even know how long it was. It was just said he prayed it. The second prayer that he prayed in 1 Kings 17 and 18, the second prayer was the prayer for fire with the prophets of Baal. They, the ones who had the long prayer, they prayed all day. They cut themselves, screamed, yelled, jumped up and down. And Elijah prayed 63 words, fervently, righteously, pursuing the will of God. And at the close of chapter 18, when he needed it to rain again, He doesn't tell us what he prayed either. It just says he knelt down, put his head between his knees and began to seek the Lord. And seven times he sent his servant out. Will you check the weather? He kept coming back. It's still sunny. Would you check the weather? Persistence, fervency, knowing that God had called him to do this. It was a conviction born in his heart of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you something, church. We need men and women who are willing to get on their face before God, stirred by the Holy Spirit from within, and hold on to the promises of God with the conviction of the Holy Spirit until God begins to work in our lives. His will. Amen. This is the conviction. This is the characteristic, rather, of passionate prayer. Someone said, the spirit of prayer within me is the proof that the power of God is ready to work. When God, the Holy Spirit, begins to stir us to pray. And the third characteristic of Christian prayer. So, Christian prayer is not repetitious necessarily. It's not ritualistic. It's not just, it's not, here's Christian prayer. Righteous man. Fervent. Passionate. And thirdly, powerful. Christian prayer is powerful. Christian prayer supernaturally alters circumstances. I didn't make this up. I found it in here and I'm just sharing it with you. Amen. Isn't this a good word? That the prayers of God's people, I'm not trying to give us a magic potion or a magic equation. I'm just simply trying to take the word of God that he has given us to understand this stuff and break it down to you. Christian prayer, this power rather comes from the word energeo. It is working in a situation, it's it's energized, it's working in a situation which brings it from one stage to the next. Did you hear what I just said? It's It's the energy working in a situation that brings it from one stage to the next. Does anybody have a circumstance that you're praying, oh God, I need you to move it from here to here and your will be done. One writer used the illustration of of, uh, of uh, uh, electrical current energizing a wire, bringing it to a shining bulb. It is the effect, effect, effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man does much work. Christian praying is not a therapeutic exercise that all can attain through proper methods of reflection or ritual. There's no magic potion, no magic man, no magic oil. It is transformational exercise that is rooted in the real power of God and that is available to the believer who is holy and passionately trusting in God for the needs in his life. James concludes this story. 
And I feel bad that you don't have a fourth service because I've been cutting out early here, but I can't now. I've got to finish this one, all right? James concludes this with a real-life illustration of prayer. In 1 Kings 17 and 18, I mentioned a moment ago the story of Ahab and Jezebel and, and, and Elijah praying, and it stopped raining. And then the prophets of Baal prayed all day, and he prayed fire, 63 words, and then he prayed again for rain. Here's, here's the, the people in that day believed, as I said earlier, they believed that Elijah was on a different plane. And James says, Elijah wasn't on a different plane. He was a man just like you. The word means he, has, he was of your same constitution. He put his pants on or his robe on just like you do. There's a, there's a move in the church world today. There's a move in modern Christianity to say the Old Testament is irrelevant. Well, James makes the Old Testament pretty relevant right here. Amen? He says, this is a man. This is your example, church. He's a man who prayed fervently. Elijah was, had, a, had alignment in his heart to the will of God. Elijah was in touch and listening to God's word. Elijah had faith in the power of God. And Elijah had persistence in the work of God. He pursued God until God moved. So what is the summary of this passage? The summary of this passage is there really is power in prayer for the Christian. There really is. So why we pray and fasting for 21 days? Why we pray? You want to know why we pray? Because prayer changes people's lives and circumstances. We had a gentleman come in. I don't know, you might be here, but he had a situation in his life last week. And the first day of his fast, the situation had been on three years. And the first day of the fast, he began to pray. Six hours later, that situation began to resolve itself. Six hours later. I'm not here. God's, God's the one in charge of the clock. I'm not here. to. It might be Abraham 400. It might be Nehemiah 52 days, 400 years. God's in charge of the timing. But I know this. Christian prayer changes things. Amen. Therefore, what am I doing preaching? We ought to be praying, right? The power in prayer is praying. The power in prayer is praying. Listen, church. I feel like, I feel like a kindergartner in the area of prayer. Over and over again. And every year we come to January and I'm like, Lord, help me. Help us to understand it. Help me to understand. Help us to do it. Help us not just talk about it. Help us to do it. See, I don't know how to pray. I don't, just pray. Yesterday, we started this, this seven, eight-hour deal where we were going to pray together, 50 people. That's a little intimidating, by the way, to lead. If you're not, if, you, if, you, if the Lord doesn't help you, which that's the way it ought to be, by the way. Amen. And I said to them in the beginning, I had to speak for about 30 minutes, and I said to them, here's how we'll know today is a success. It's, did he speak well or did someone sing well? That's not how we measure whether this day... Here's the how we know if today is a success. Did we pray? Did we pray? And James, is the half-brother of Jesus, knows these Christians who are under great persecution and struggling. And he writes them all this good advice in the book of James. He gives them a lot of good teaching. And this is his conclusion. Pray. Pray. Pray, 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 pray by yourself, get the leaders in the church to pray, pray with your brothers and sisters in the church, pray, 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 that's a solution, pray, this is, this is our great need, to pray, get alone and pray. Let the leaders to pray. Pray with believers. 
How do we know if the Lord has heard our prayer? How do we know if the Lord has heard our prayer? Here's how we know. Have you prayed? Have you prayed? So why, why would we not pray? Let me summarize this. Prayer is always connected to the purposes of God. And this is an encouraging word, and it's where all of it comes together for me. And that is that all of this praying that he's talking about in James 5 is related to the message of the gospel. So here's what I mean by that. He says, the righteous person will be the effective prayer. And whoever is being prayed for, the purpose of God working in their life is not just so they'll feel better and they'll live a life without discomfort. No, he said, pray for that person who is sick so that they can also be forgiven of their sins. Because God connects every battle in our life to his grand purposes if we'll allow him. This is encouraging to me. And I hope it is for you this morning. There's nothing in your life that's burdening your mind today that's saying it seems so insignificant, so unrelated from the church. No, all of this church is made up with 10,000 tentacles that reach into our lives. And if we'll submit the problems of our life to the purposes of God and the will of God, then the power of God can work in our circumstances. Amen? Sometimes we view prayer sort of therapeutically. We just say, okay, if I can get God to help me and order the world in a way that makes my life very nice and comfortable. As if somehow that's going to happen. God never said he wants to order the world according to our comfort. He wants to order the world according to his grand and glorious plan. Amen. So God does care about your bad knee. Amen. He does. And he wants to work in that. He wants to help you with it. But he also, more importantly, wants you to surrender your life, confess your sin, and let him do his perfect work in you. Amen. The ultimate aim of prayer is that the gospel will be expanded throughout the world and that God's will and his kingdom would be done. Wednesday nights, we're praying that it's not just for Wednesday nights, but I hope and pray you'll join us back on Wednesday nights because we're going to spend that hour praying. But I wonder this morning as we stand and prepare to close, and this is what I really wasn't able to do in the first two services. I just cold turkey let them out because I didn't have a choice. I want you to stand with me this morning. And I want us just to begin to obey the word of God in this moment. I want us to obey the word of God simply by just simply praying, saying, Lord, here I am. Lord, I need you. Just take, I want us to take a couple minutes. If you're here this morning and you want to take the second to go to the second part of prayer you need somebody to pray with you or pray over you feel free as we're praying just step out of your seat and come forward we got a prayer team we got leaders that would be happy to gather around and pray over you this is all what he told us to do if you want to if, if you're a husband or wife or if you're comfortable and somebody wants you want to pray with somebody near that's fine too but I just want us to stop and do what the word of God says and pray if you need prayer you need somebody to pray around you pray over you the prayer team will be happy to do that but if nothing else let's just take a couple minutes church and I'm not going to lead you and say some nice poetic Shakespearean prayer I just want you to lift your heart lift your voice to the Lord and say oh God here we are we're praying just for a couple minutes can we just pray Lord we bow before you this morning Lord
just trust in you this morning. We need you today. We wait upon you, Lord. We call upon you right now. Would you, as your disciples ask, we ask you, Lord, would you teach us to pray? Would you teach us to pray? Give us the spirit of prayer. Give us, Lord, a burden for prayer. Lord, give us answers to our prayers according to your will, I pray. May your name be exalted in all that we are and all that we ask. We need you today. We trust you. We thank you. We praise you that you're the God who hears prayer. You're the God who answers prayer. We love you. We praise you today. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information about Eastlake Community Church, please visit us online at eastlake-church.com or find us on your favorite social media platform at Eastlake SML. Thanks for joining us.